as the rest of you go back to where your people are at, the rest of you can open up your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'll have to ask Pastor Robert about that Santo Domingo song because I do not know it. <laughs> uh, I did four years of Spanish, so uh, I missed that lesson. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 6. We are um, three weeks in. This will be our fourth week in our series on what is a person. And we have one more week left next week. And then after Labor Day, we'll jump back into Romans. We'll spend the whole of the fall in Romans chapter 8. And I'm very excited to spend that time with you. But today, I want us to talk through the topic of self. The topic of self. What is a self? And I was, uh, the reason that I wanted to include this as a part of the series was. Uh, a couple of months back, I was sitting at coffee with a member at Mosaic, and they asked me, uh, what does the Bible say about our personality? And I had no answer for them. I was like a deer in headlights. The moment I heard the question, I realized I don't have any clue what the Bible has to say about personality. But we talk about personalities all the time. We talk about personality tests or Enneagram numbers. We talk about how we're wired. We talk about our uniqueness as a self. We talk about ourselves as different from other people around us. And I think we like talking about this because, really, I mean, we like talking about ourselves, right? Uh, but I really began to search the scriptures to kind of think through how are we different from each other and what accounts for that difference? Really, what is a personality? And as I began to explore it, I realized that we needed to pan out and not just think about what a personality is, but really what the self is. Because personality, like other words, words like authenticity or wiring or individuality or identity, are words that are kind of wrapped up into this much larger category of the self. And you might go, well, well why does it really matter that we know what the Bible says about something like ourselves? Well, like we've been exploring in this series, it's of incredible significance because knowing who and what we are is crucial for us to live in a way that aligns with what is true, with what is good, with what is beautiful. So our understanding of self is very significant. Our understanding of who and what we are significantly influences our decisions. It influences our actions. It influences our practices. And even if it had no bearing on any of those things, you and I live in a world where we are constantly assaulted by algorithms and attention that is seeking to try to convince us to believe something about who we are and what we are. They're trying to sell us a story of what we are and who we are and how we are to live in the world. So we should be prepared to live knowing that if we don't get clear about who and what we are, someone is going to sell us a story on it. We need to know the difference between what's true and what's not. So the big question for today is how should we view ourselves? What does the Bible say about the self, really about our interior life, how we understand who we are and how we move in the life of the world? The first sermon in this series, we looked at four fundamental things that are true of every person. And just by way of review, let me remind you, all persons, all people are creatures, we are not the creator God. We are creatures created by God. And subsequently, we are limited in a way that God is not, in many ways that God is not. But we are not just creatures like every other created thing. We are special because we have been created in the image of God. So we bear the image of God. We are composed of both body 
and soul, and we are meant to reflect God in the world in a unique way. So we are creatures in the image of God, and we are members. We are meant to exist in community. We are designed for fellowship, and this fellowship has a purpose. We're partners with God and what he is up to in the world. These are the essentials of our personhood. But what makes us different from one another? Because we're not all the same. And how do we account for these differences? Well, we're going to look at Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 just to get us started. But we're also going to kind of jump throughout Scripture today as we explore this topic. So I'm going to read Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 4. The words will be on the screen as well. After I read it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. You're invited to respond, thanks be to God. The reason we do that is that God hasn't left his people in silence. He's spoken. We want to give thanks for that. So Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if we're going to talk about what is the self, then we need to ask this question first. What is the center of the human person? What is the center of consciousness, so to speak, in the human person? And there are many different options when exploring this. But when we ask the question, what is the center of the human person, we're not asking, at least by any true accounting of the world, what is the physical center of the human person's body? That's not what we're asking. What we're asking is where does one's sense of consciousness come from? Where does our sense of self-awareness and understanding, where does our sense of identity emerge from? And there are various options on offer in the world around you. You're familiar with some of these. Some would suggest that it's the brain. Some would say, no, 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 it's not the brain. It's really the chemicals washing around and over the brain. Some might say, well, it's your unique wiring. Some might say it's our experiences of the world. Some might say it's our soul, right? These are all different kind of explanations of how to explain our interior life as people. How can we consider who we are and who God is? Where does that sense of consciousness, of self-awareness come from? Well, in Scripture, the center of the human person is without question the heart. The heart, The heart is seen as the center of the human person. In the Old Testament, the word for heart is lev. And in the New Testament, the word for heart in the Greek is cardia. And these two words capture the biblical vision that the center of our self-awareness, the center of our consciousness, the center of our identity is our heart. Throughout the Bible, when God's word is speaking of the heart, it's not primarily talking about a blood-pumping organ in your chest. That's not primarily what it has in mind when it's talking about the heart. When in Deuteronomy 6, you hear, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And then in the next verse, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. It's not talking about the blood-pumping organ that is here in your chest. It is talking about something deeper. And we know that it's talking about something deeper because throughout the witness of Scripture, we hear the heart talked about in some significant ways. Now, I'm about to just kind of 
machine gun fire some verses at you, okay? And I don't expect for you to write them all down. I don't expect for you to memorize all of them. But some of them are going to be on the screen. So I'm going to go through these with you, and I hope that you'll find them helpful. When we think about the heart, there are really three things I want us to point to. The first is our heart is where our thoughts emerge from. Our heart is where our thoughts emerge from. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. According to Scripture, our heart, again, not the blood-pumping vessel in our chest, but something deeper, our soul, our consciousness, it's where our thoughts emerge from. It's the source. It's the seat of our thoughts, of our consciousness. But the heart is also where our speech comes from. Matthew 12, 34, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the heart is really the source, not just of what we think, but of what we say. The mouth is the overflow of what we feel and what we believe in our heart. Our heart is not just only the place where our thoughts emerge from and the place where our speech comes from. It's a spiritual battleground. Deuteronomy 6.4, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. I'm going to write these laws on your heart. Jeremiah 17.9-10, through 10, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Ezekiel eleven nineteen through 20 in this incredible passage talking about what's going to happen when the new covenant breaks forth in power, we hear this, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. The heart is where our thoughts emerge from. It's, it's where our speech overflows from. It's the spiritual battleground. This is the center of the human person. When we think about how we are, how we live in the world, how we think what we think and why we think what we think, the answer, according to Scripture, is always going to come back to our hearts. Our hearts. It's the center of human consciousness. In short, the heart is the intersection of God's good design, sin's significant impact, and God's gracious restoration in Jesus. The heart is the intersection of God's good design. God has designed us to be worshipers and worship all of our thinking and our speaking, our praise, our loving, our dreaming, our imagining, our creating. It it emerges from who we are fundamentally just captured in the status of our heart before God. God created us to live in fellowship with God. So the heart is the intersection of God's good design. But it's not free from brokenness, not because God failed in his endeavor, but there are holes in our heart, so to speak. And those holes haven't emerged because God is a bad designer. Those holes have emerged because of the significant impact of sin. Sin has punctured holes into our heart before God, and they're leaky now in significant ways. And that's why we need God's gracious restoration in Christ, a restoration that over and over and over again in Scripture is dealing with the heart at the epicenter. You heard it in Ezekiel, the heart of stone being exchanged with the heart of flesh. 
You hear in the Proverbs that the king's heart is a stream in the palm of the Lord. You hear all of the imagery of being born again, of being given a new heart in regeneration in the New Testament. See, it's fundamental to how God views our salvation that throughout the Bible we come to realize that in God's word, the heart is the thing that must be dealt with in order for us to experience all that God has for us in fellowship with him and in fellowship with one another. For each human person, a creature of body and soul, the heart is the center of the self. It's a battleground From the very beginning of our lives, because you and I have been broken by sin, we need a new heart. We need a replacement. We need a regeneration. We need to be born again. This is why it is very suspect advice to just say, when we're considering what we do and what we desire and how we think through things, it is very suspect advice to merely say, just do whatever you desire. Follow your heart. This is suspect advice always. It's particularly deceptive when that kind of advice is given to those who haven't yet had a change of heart in Jesus. Our hearts are born broken from the start. And when we think about who we are, what it means to understand our difference and distinctiveness, we have to understand this, that God seeks to deal with our heart. And our heart is the epicenter of both the gracious restoration work in Jesus and the significant impact of sin in our lives. So when we're thinking about the self, we start with what's the center of the self. It's the human heart. That's what scripture is saying. But there is a ginormous pitfall that we have to avoid when we're thinking about how we're different from other people. When we begin to think about who we are uniquely, There is a huge pitfall in front of us, and it is the pitfall of overly emphasizing the individual. Overly emphasizing the individual. The pitfall of radical individualism. Because in the story of Scripture, the emphasis is not on the individual. The emphasis is not on me, me, me. The emphasis is not on I, I, I. The emphasis is on we. The emphasis is on us. Genesis 2, we hear when God creates Adam, he looks at his creation and the one thing that he says is not good is that man should be alone. God designs and creates a community because the absence of it is not good. In Genesis 6, through the flood account, we see that God doesn't merely save one righteous man, he saves the righteous family. In Genesis 12, God calls Abram and he calls him to leave his family. Why? So that God can create a new family in Canaan, in the promised land. In Exodus 6, God sends Moses into Egypt to rescue the people of Israel. I'm just giving you snapshots, but trust me when I tell you the emphasis on in the Bible is not on me it's on we always and when we think about how we're different from others we have to be very mindful that you and I and all of us that live in the global west have been significantly impacted by the spirit of radical individualism which is viewing ourselves as autonomous sovereign independent isolated Basically, the ideology that we belong to me, that I belong to me, that I am mine and no one other can have belonging in my life. I belong to no one else but me. We get lots of specific stories 
about specific persons. But these stories in Scripture are always tied to the greater story and the greater mission of God rescuing not a person, but a people. Of God rescuing a people, of bringing them into incredible freedom. And this spirit of radical individualism, it it shapes us in significant ways. So I want to give you just maybe a way to kind of put your antenna up so that you can be mindful about the different ways that the false story of radical individualism is going to seek to co-op a healthy self-awareness and create in you an unhealthy self-focus. Because that's what radical individualism does. So here's a few things. The first thing that radical individualism is characterized by is a preoccupation with the uniqueness of me. A preoccupation with the uniqueness of me. That I am utterly unique. You couldn't possibly begin to understand me because I am so totally, utterly different from you. So radical individualism is trying to get you to believe you are so indescribably, wonderfully unique that you're unintelligible to other people. Do you know what the byproduct of radical individualism in that space is? It's not that you feel more honor and worth in your life. It's that you end up isolating yourself. And withdrawing. Because if no one else can understand you but you, who would you like to spend time with? Nobody better than you, right? You don't need anyone else. You can do this on your own because who could possibly understand how wonderfully unique that you are? Radical individualism convinces us we'll feel more worthy if we believe that we're actually totally unintelligible to other people. And the significant byproduct of that is loneliness, Don't believe me? We've been preaching a radical individualistic gospel for 50 years, and the epidemic of loneliness has only increased during that time. Look at what every major study of depression and anxiety and loneliness in the last 40 or 50 years will show you, and it is that we are on an increasing trajectory of withdrawal, of depression, and anxiety. And underneath all of that is a false story that we've been told is compelling, which is that we are uniquely, utterly our own and that no one else could possibly understand us. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Radical individualism focuses on a preoccupation with the uniqueness of self and it leads to isolation, alienation, withdrawal. Radical individualism gives you a doctrine that's different from what we've been reciting in the Heidelberg Catechism. Because in the story of radical individualism, you belong to you. I belong to me. A core doctrine of radical individualism is that we belong to ourselves, that that we are our own, that we belong to ourselves fundamentally, and yet this is not what Scripture is inviting us into. God is not inviting us into a life of increasing freedom from God in others, but one of increasing dependency on God with others. This is the witness of Scripture from the beginning to the end. And the last part of radical individualism is this. Our flourishing in happiness is contingent on our ability to live in a way that is authentic to who we define ourselves to be. That I can't really be happy unless I'm allowed to be who I think I should be at any point, in any time, in any way, no matter what for you. Radical individualism has seeped into the soil, not just of our culture, because it's easy to go on us, them, here, but it's seeped into the life of any church, of any community, anywhere. So we have to be mindful about it. 
Because it is constantly pulling our attention away from God, away from us, and always back to me, always back to the sovereign self. The story of radical individualism is false. We aren't autonomous selves defined by ourselves. Let me just say it clearly. You don't belong to you. You belong to God. And I know that seems like maybe it's grating on us. Maybe it feels like, wow, that, that feels like sandpaper to my soul. And yet it is true whether we acknowledge it or not. Philippians 2 says that one day it's going to be clear to everybody that the Lord Jesus Christ has been given the name that is above every name. So that every knee in heaven and on earth will bow and every tongue confess in earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The reality is, is that whether we want to acknowledge it or not, we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to God. We belong to God. That's what we've been reciting in the Heidelberg Catechism. Each week, we've been asking, what is our only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me spoil it for you. The story of Scripture is not a story of your freedom into self-authenticity. The story of Scripture is not a story of your freedom into self-authenticity. The story of Scripture is a story of your freedom into dependency on the faithfulness of God forever. That's the story of Scripture. And if you've tried to live as a sovereign self, and all of us have, whether we know it or not, you might be there right now, you know just how condemning, how destructive, and how demoralizing it is to believe that I belong to me, no one else can understand me, I gotta do this on my own, I gotta make my own way, my destiny is my decision, and I have to have a life of fulfillment of all of my authentic desires. If you've tried to live that way, you know it is a road that is wide, it seems pleasant, and in the end, it leads to destruction. It is not a road that leads to life. It isn't. This is, in some ways, what the whole book of Ecclesiastes is about. The writer of Ecclesiastes, someone who has far more power and wealth than you have or will ever have, explores every alternative avenue to a life of meaning that's focused on himself. And in the end, what does he say? Vanity of vanities. It's all vanity. It doesn't matter. There's no meaning. It doesn't work out. It doesn't play the way that you think it will. It's not fulfilling. It's not satisfying. The roads that you and I test have already been tested by somebody wealthier, wiser, and more powerful than us who could really do it the best way it could possibly be done. They got to the end and they said, it's garbage. It doesn't work. You know, we don't even have to look at the ancient Near Eastern literature of Ecclesiastes to make this argument. Do you know every single time that we've hit one of these kind of pocketed recessions or there's been some sort of great whistleblowing that brought down a corporation or company, the fallout of that, when you have people whose wealth is inestimable, even when that wealth is cut just in half, when they still have more than you and I could ever dream of, they can't imagine living their life that way. It demoralizes them. 
It breaks them down. It's inconceivable to them. You and I know, both from the story of Scripture and from the stories of people's experiences in the world, the story we tell ourselves and the small experiences we have that validate in our own lives, we know that even after we've got everything we've wanted, if we don't have God, we still feel restless. We know that when we've lost everything and God remains with us, that we still feel full. We don't belong to us, and that's really good news. I am not my own, and it is good that I am not. I am a terrible God to me. I am either a tyrant taskmaster, or I am a lenient, lenient, lenient guardian. I either move towards the legalism of condemning law on my heart or I move to what seems like the free field of pleasure wherever I can find it. I am a terrible God to me. You are a terrible God to you. And if you don't know it yet, it's gonna become clear to you. And when it does become clear to you, do you know what? You will be prepared to condemn yourself because you're a terrible God. But the God of the Bible will be ready to welcome you because he is gracious. And he's faithful. You don't want you to belong to you. You're a terrible Lord. And I am too. We are unique. We are different. And our differences are not just a result of sin or culture. No, there are ways in which each one of us are unique. And we're not radically individualistic. We're not radically isolated. We're not radically radically unique. But we are unique. How are we unique from one another? We can't buy into the lie that our uniqueness, our individuality, our personality, our self is the source of freedom, salvation, or flourishing. We can't buy into that, but we can really come to appreciate that through God's creation, through the impact of sin, both directly and indirectly, and through the gracious restoration of God, there are ways in which you and I are not the same. And that's okay. It's not just okay, it's good. So I want to just maybe share with you a few ways of thinking through the self. How to understand how you're different. Not radically different, but different from other people. And maybe some ways that you can then move forward in faithful practice on that foundation. How does what we've heard shape the way we think about ourselves? Well, let me say this. We're not the same. We have all been shaped by different things. We've been shaped by wickedness. We've been shaped by the impact of sin on us and the impact of sin on the world. We've been shaped by woundedness. We've been shaped by other people's sin against us. We've been shaped by sin that exists generationally in our families. We've been shaped by gifts, blessings that we've received. We've been shaped by failures that we've encountered. We've been shaped by victories won. We've been shaped by the culture in which we grew up in. We've been shaped by our family backgrounds. These are all significant contributors that put their fingerprints on how we come to be how we are, on how we live the life that God is inviting us to live. They don't determine that, but they shape it. They shape it. Just consider your personality. Our personality is the composite of our characteristics, of our habits, of the qualities that form our distinctiveness. And our personalities are changing. They're fluid. They're not fixed. There's a counselor here in town 
And as I was meeting with him over the course of the last year, he said this. He said, you know, our culture thinks that some things are fixed, not fluid. But we treat our personalities like they're fixed when they are fluid. Our personalities are not fixed. Sometimes you'll meet somebody who's just like, yeah, this is just who I am. You got to take it or leave it, you know. I'm just an angry person. It's like, well, no. Do you want to live as an angry person? Because that's not just something you should resign yourself to. They'll say, well, I'm just an anxious person. I'm just constantly anxious. You know, I'm just a worrier. You know, I was raised in a worrier's home, and I'm just always going to be a worrier. It's like, well, no, I think that worry is something that we all kind of struggle with and deal with in different ways, but you can be transformed. You don't have to just be perpetually in anger or perpetually in worry. We don't want to resign ourselves to the weaknesses and to the brokenness of our personalities. We want to pursue transformation. Our personalities, maybe this will help, help you. Our personalities should shape our lives. They shouldn't torch our lives. Our personalities should influence our lives. They just shouldn't destroy them. We should see them redeemed. But personality is not the only way that we think about the concept of self. We have to think about embodiment. We're not all built the same way. We don't all look the same way. And our embodiment is significant. You might think, well, pastor, where does really embodiment issues come into play in the story of Scripture? Well, there are thousands of examples, but can you think of a very famous story in the ministry of Jesus where how somebody's body is built comes into play? Because I can think about dozens. I can think about people who are suffering under the impact of sin, right? They have some sort of brokenness they need to be healed from. I can also think about things, how people's bodies are built, that isn't sinful, but it does shape their life. You know what I think about I think about the man who climbed up in the sycamore tree, right? He couldn't see. He was short. It affects the story. This man's height affects the story. Embodiment matters. How we're built matters. It matters in how we move in the world. It matters how we engage with one another. It changes and shapes the way we view ourselves. Our embodiment is the unique way that we physically move through the world. And a person is not just a soul, not just a heart. They're a body. They're a body, and that's not insignificant. God designed us as a unity of body and soul. And our embodiment's reflected. Are we big or small? Short or tall? Light or dark? Fast or slow? Strong or weak? Able or unable? Straight hair? Curly hair? No hair? Right? Can I get an amen? Thank you. We live embodied as physical creatures and our embodiment is shaped by the world we live in, and it shapes the way that we interact and engage with the world. Our bodies move in and through the world with other embodied people. And because of historical realities, because of cultural taste, because of false ideologies, our bodies are often viewed through other people's lenses, and we view other people through our lenses. Embodiment shapes the way we live. It's a mark of our differentiation. It is often used as a tool for our division. It shouldn't be. But if we can't name it, if we can't acknowledge that our bodies are just different and that we live as embodied people, then we're going to go around thinking that everybody has the same experience of the world that I do because of how we move through it. But that's not the case. That's not the case. Not just our personality, not just our embodiment when we think about the uniqueness of ourselves, but our perspectives. Our perspectives, what could be called a worldview. 
a worldview. Our worldview is, is shaped by a number of things. It's shaped by our embodiment. It's shaped by our religious beliefs. It's shaped by our family or origin. It's shaped by our community context. It's shaped by our language. It's shaped by the content we consume. Our worldview, how we view the world, is often different. Even in the midst of a Christian community like this, I would imagine if I took five of the most contentious issues in our culture and I gave them to 10 people in this room right now who all say Jesus Christ is Lord, I would imagine I'd get slightly variating and different responses. Our perspective, it shapes our uniqueness. It contributes to it and it is a product of it. Everyone has a worldview. The only question that the Christian asks is, does this worldview correspond to God's world and reality? Does it correspond to God's world and reality? And then we try to figure out, okay, well, why do you see it that way? Huh, that is an area of wisdom. That is an area of mystery. That is an area of uncertainty. Let's reason together in light of God's word, of our fellowship in Christ, and the reality of the world that we live in. We are different from one another. We're, not, we're just not unspeakably different. We are unique from one another. We're just not radically unique. And to say so is to immediately withdraw ourselves to an island. To say, no one can know me but me. And yet what scripture says is no one can know our heart but God. But God. I think we can say in short that the self, who we are, our personality, our selfhood, our uniqueness is our God-designed, sin-touched, experience-shaped, grace-redeemed way of being. That our self, our personality, our uniqueness is our God-designed, sin-touched, experience-shaped, grace-redeemed way of being. So what do we do with this? Two things for you. The first, we cultivate a God-focused self-awareness. A God-focused self-awareness. Not a self-focused self-awareness. A God-focused self-awareness. Psalm 139, the psalmist says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. God knows us. And so when we think about trying to come to a true knowledge of self, we don't start with ourself. We don't start with the end of the sermon. We start with the beginning. Who is God? That's where we start, with a God-focused self-awareness. And the second, after we pursue a God-focused self-awareness, we pursue a God-centered self-transformation. We pursue a God-centered self-transformation. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We pursue a God-focused self-transformation, a God-centered self-transformation. We look to God, we look to how God has spoken in his word and in Jesus Christ, and we say, that is what I want my life to be shaped by. Now, let me just pause here. Because self-transformation and self-awareness are two things that are incredibly in vogue culturally. It's just the engine that drives them is broken and the direction they're headed in is broken. There's been a lot of attention 
over the last few years especially, applied to the concept of self-care, self-health, self-wellness, all of these things. And while many of the practices that are encouraged are not bad, like take a nap, rest, work less, right? Like those are some good things. The goal of the Christian life isn't to say, you know what, I need to fill my life with less and less. The goal of the Christian life is I need to fill my life with more and more of communion with God. The goal of the Christian life isn't increasing margin. The goal of the life is increasing fellowship with God. That's what it is. We need to be careful and mindful that while we might adopt some very helpful practices, some very healthy practices, practices that nine times out of ten are rooted in some sort of truth in Scripture, that we don't take those practices without the right engine and the right direction. Unless you think that this is just the musings of a Christian pastor, listen to Johan Hari. He's a non-Christian journalist talking about what he discovered studying depression and anxiety. This is at the end of a long, long study on depression and anxiety. This is what he writes. I started to think of one of the most banal, obvious cliches we have. Be you. Be yourself. We say it to one another all the time. We share memes about it. We say it to encourage people when they are lost or down. Even our shampoo bottles tell us because you're worth it. But what I was being taught is if you want to stop being depressed, don't be you. Don't be yourself. Don't fixate on how you're worth it. It's thinking about you, you, you that's helped to make you feel so lousy. No, don't be you. Be connected with everyone around you. Be part of the whole. Don't strive to be the guy addressing the crowd. Strive to be the crowd. I thought there was something wrong with the self, and the solution would come from repairing and aggrandizing the self. I puffed it up, but it turns out the self isn't the solution. The only answer lies beyond it. This is not a pastor. It's not a theologian. This is somebody who's saying, I've looked at it. I've tried it. And the route of making me, 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 the focus, increasingly, it doesn't work out. It doesn't work out. Like the writer of Ecclesiastes, Hari is giving us a view from under the sun. And he discovers what the Ecclesiastes teacher discovers. The only answer to what it means to be fully alive lies beyond the self. We have to look above the sun. We have to look above the confines of this material world and our individual selves in order to see that the salvation we need and the, dissatis- and the satisfaction we desire will never be found in some hidden pocket of ourself, but in the open heart of God. What we're looking for is not going to be found in the hidden corners of our heart. It's going to be found in the open heart of God. We are different, not unspeakably so, but different nonetheless. And God is inviting us to bring our distinctiveness, a distinctiveness he has created and designed, and though sin has touched, grace can redeem. He's inviting us to bring our difference, our distinctiveness, into fellowship with God in Jesus, where he redeems it and releases it, not for isolation, but for fellowship. Not always for personal power, but for presence with God and with others. This is the open heart of God for us to lose ourselves in him and be glad that we are lost in him. Let's pray. Father, we love you. 
We thank you, God, for your mercy and grace in Jesus. We ask that you would bless us, that we would increasingly believe and know that we are not our own, but belong body and soul and life and in death to God, to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to the indwelling power, presence, and person of the Holy Spirit. God, I thank you that we are not all the same. I thank you that we are different from one another. I pray that our differences would increase and grow in healthy ways, that our personalities that you have designed and that sin has impacted and yet grace is redeeming would come together in a beautiful whole, that us as bits and pieces would be assembled together in your son, Jesus Christ, into something more beautiful than we could ever be by ourselves. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the gift of grace in Jesus. We thank you for the gift of a grace-driven family. We pray that we would walk on the foundation of that grace. We pray these things in the name of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.